up, Mr. Scott. Permission to come aboard, sir. Welcome to Now Playing's Star Trek Retrospective Series. We here at Now Playing will be reviewing all of the previous installments of the Star Trek movie franchise, going at warp speed towards the new J.J. Abrams Star Trek movie coming to theaters May 8, 2009. Bringing you the perspective of a Star Trek novice, a casual Star Trek movie fan, and a former hardcore Trekker, we will be providing spoiler-filled critiques of this long-running movie franchise. Today we're talking about Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. Spock! Spock! (laughs) (laughs) Starring William Shatner, DeForest Kelly, Christopher Lloyd, and directed by Leonard Nimoy. This is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. Stuart in L.A.? Arnie, still looking in my basement for Spock. We'll leave out some food for him in case he comes back late. He's in one of these boxes. <laughs> so this is the follow-up to the highly successful, the critical and fan success, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Might I say, it was a critical success, a fan success, but it didn't make as much money as part one. And this one, we are having the crew going after the corpse of Spock. So I guess a good place to start would be perhaps a small plot summary. I think a plot summary is a good thing. As the movie starts in exactly that point, we open with footage straight out of episode two. And in that enigmatic scene where Spock kind of groped McCoy's face, otherwise (laughs) it's a Vulcan mind meld, and said, remember. What we find out in this movie is Spock kind of brain screwed McCoy by putting his katra into McCoy's head. His katra is his living essence, all of his knowledge, all that he experienced so that it could be taken back to Vulcan where they have like a well of souls type thing where every Vulcan's katra goes. So he downloaded his brain into someone else's brain. Exactly. But didn't bother to tell anyone. So McCoy merely is going nuts. (laughs) The Enterprise returns back home, beaten to crap by Khan and is going to be decommissioned and the crew all reassigned and reassigned to quiet things because it's a big cover-up for the Genesis device. But what we find out is Spock's body landed on Genesis instead of burning up in atmosphere as intended. And because of the Genesis device, his body was also brought back to life in the form of a young but rapidly aging child. So you have a child without a mind and a mind without a body. And so the crew must go back to Genesis, which is quarantined and restricted, to recover Spock's body. It's hard enough to get transport, but then when they get there, there's a Klingon bird of prey, commanded by Christopher Lloyd, attempting to steal the ultimate weapon, the Genesis torpedo, from the Federation. Battle with the Klingons ensues as the planet begins to self-destruct because Kirk's son used proto-matter, an unstable substance, otherwise known as a plot device, (laughs) in the Genesis Matrix. So the planet was breaking up. Miraculously, they get Spock off the planet right when he's the age he was when he died, plus or minus two years. Get him back to Vulcan where we get a long drawn out scene where his mind is put back in his body. Voila, Spock is reborn. So I want to start off this, where you started off, Arnie, is they had a little blue box. <laughs> a little tiny blue box in the middle of the screen, recapping end of the last movie, and it got bigger and bigger as it went. 
Did I miss some sort of symbolism as why it started off with a little blue box and got bigger? Am I missing something completely, or they thought it was just a cool idea? I'm going to go cool idea because I didn't see any symbolism there. Perhaps it's because by the time this movie came out, VHS had firmly taken hold in the mass audience. Star Trek II was one of the first VHS tapes priced for sale to consumers at $40, whereas most were well over 100 mm-hmm. And so perhaps the thinking is you've seen this a lot on your TV, and now we're going to take you from the TV, the small box, and bring it to the big screen again. Okay, maybe that's what it is then. Okay. And conversely, as you said, Star Trek II was the first movie I saw of Star Trek, and I saw it on cable a lot. So since having seen Star Trek II so much, the first Star Trek movie I ever saw in the theater was Star Trek III, The Search for Spock. I saw it in theaters, too, but uh, I had seen the first one in theaters, and I skipped two. Bad choice, I know. (laughs) After I saw the first one and was so bored by it, I thought they were all going to be like that. So you can understand why I was reticent to go see another one. But uh, I did. I saw part three in theaters and really enjoyed it at the time. It felt like more of the same. It felt like it continued a lot of what had happened and had righted what everyone wanted to be righted, which is that Spock got to live. I first saw this on an ABC broadcast in 1988. Wow. And now you mentioned last podcast that the version we saw of the director's cut of Star Trek II had extra footage they put in for broadcast. Did they add more information, more scenes into Star Trek III on that ABC special, do you know? No, this is actually one of the shortest Trek films, weighing in at an hour and 45 minutes. And that's an hour and 45 minutes, including all the credits and including copious flashback scenes, Mm -hmm. which are not only in the blue box at the beginning, but then later Kirk is watching a VHS tape of episode two. I thought it was really great how I always concern about the 20th century crap in these things. I love how VHS tapes survived in the 24th century. And <laughs> I love how the footage of the cameras in the Enterprise was wonderfully edited. But that's beside the point, I guess. Yes, well, we know, all know that DVD and Blu-ray didn't make it in the eugenics scores of the 90s. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to start this conversation, though, before we get too much into this kind of stuff, with Leonard Nimoy, who obviously we all know as Spock, directs this film. And I know there's a little bit of a backstory on that, but is there anything else that we should know going into the search for Spock? This movie is perhaps the simplest of the Trek films. My opinion of the plot is it's an entire plot written out of a contract dispute. Spock didn't want to come back. Nimoy didn't want to come back. For whatever reason, Nimoy said he had so much fun on part two. Other people say he demanded directing credit in order to reprise the role. But for whatever reason, they had to undo what they did, and we are treated to a one hour and 45 minute control Z on the movies. Control Z for Windows users being the undo key. And for the most part, though, it does sort of work, don't you think? Yes and no. I feel like as a kid, it was very satisfying coming back to it, not having seen it since the 80s. I kind of wish it had been longer, or rather, I wish there were parts that they had dwelled upon longer and maybe not spent so much time on some of the things that they do spend screen time on. I I agree completely. Yeah, I feel like the pacing is off on this, and I kind of blame Nimoy for it. I mean, he's a director that mostly is known for comedies. He ended up directing Three Men and a Baby, and he did the more funny Star Trek Four, and, of course, a couple other bad comedies, something with Patricia Arquette. I don't even want to recall, but... (laughs) 
He's known for a light touch, and here it's just kind of beyond him to do and emulate sort of the more action-packed parts of Star Trek II. This was his first feature directing, but I agree that, you know, there's the whole thing of saying the odd Trek movies are the bad ones and the even ones are the good ones. And that was something that was said. I mean, as far as seven, I don't think anybody really started championing nine too much. But (laughs) I think that this one isn't necessarily a bad film. When you compare it to its brethren of part one and part five, it's miles above them. It's not a bad movie, but I agree that it seems perfunctory. And it just seems kind of messy. And yeah, the pacing is off. I mean, the simple fact is the title is The Search for Spock. You walk in knowing how this movie is going to end. It's kind of like when you see When Harry Met Sally. If the movie doesn't end up with them together, you walk out pissed off. (laughs) So here, you know, they're bringing Spock back. It says so in the title. So now the question is, is how they do it entertaining? And I go, mostly. But I want to say one thing this movie did do, and perhaps this is because you take Nimoy, the second banana, and put him in charge. I feel this is the first time that Star Trek was an ensemble piece and everybody had something to do. Again, I'm going to go back to what Stuart said in part one. He's the Sulu Chekhov Uhura fan, right? Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't really see those characters as all that important any more than when we were talking about part one and we had Yeoman Rand and Nurse Chapel. And as we've continued away from the TV series and gone through more and more movies, the original cast from the series has thinned out. And now we're down to the core seven. And we know them as the core seven because of our age and the movies. But I think there were definitely some more from the old series like Rand and Chapel who might have been considered core characters but never got a movie but here we've got kirk spock mccoy sulu Chekhov, uhura scotty the core seven and this movie is the first one to really focus on the seven and give each of them their own piece to do to make the whole thing happen because it's like a set of dominoes falling everybody gets their seat although uhura does get the short end again because she's left on earth yeah she gets the yeah. short end of the stick Which is par for the course for her at this point. I I was just glad that she got up and stretched her legs a little bit. She has some teleportation gun business that she does, but it's never turned out too well for Ahura. (laughs) I love the scene with Sulu helps break out McCoy, the don't call me tiny scene. I thought that was a great Sulu moment and so fitting. And if you watch Sulu throughout the movie, he does everything. He's almost a jack of all trades here. So it does make sense he's the one that get promoted later on. (laughs) He can do a lot more than we give him credit for or have a chance to see him do. What was with Sulu's jacket? Oh, wasn't that a rock and leather coat? It was weird to me. It was like it was draped over his shoulders like a cape, but it had (laughs) sleeves. It was odd. I can't explain it. Futuristic coat it may be, it didn't look very functional. I think it's a real stroke of genius that they have the original crew kind of turn rebels. It's a central plot point that in order to go back and save Spock, this crew has to defy orders and go against what the Federation wants them to do and steals the Enterprise and runs off. And that you, what you really have, I wish we had spent more time on it, was them hatching a plot to defy orders and steal the ship. That should have been even more than what they gave us a big part of this first third of this movie. 
It certainly was the most fun part of the movie, was the whole plot to break McCoy out of prison or the mental hospital or wherever. He was kind of in a halfway house at that point. And that was certainly when this movie was at its best, is getting the pieces in place to steal the Enterprise and go back to Genesis. Yeah, I could have done with even more than what they gave me, but it was definitely fun to see Sulu make some moves and take down a security guard and Ahura kind of act like Pam Greer and pack a (laughs) pistol and check off didn't do much but he was he was in a horrible pink pantsuit did you guys see that oh <laughs> yes. all of their earth clothes were bad did you see kirk's blue tracksuit? yeah it's awesome <laughs> with the stripes oh. <laughs> and yeah. scotty had that great moment with the bolt because they beautifully <laughs> set that up and earlier when he was being transferred and it was doogie hauser's dad if you all caught that i'm not sure if anyone did besides me I did, but I actually <laughs> thought that it was Coach, and that's why I knew it was Doogie Hauser's dad, is I thought it was Craig T. Nelson. <laughs> I didn't recognize him, but Miguel Ferrer, who was on Twin Peaks for a while and pops up in things, he was also on that crew. Did you With a full him? head of hair. Yeah, yeah. Now, let me ask you guys something about this whole breaking out and stealing the Enterprise. I've got two things I want to talk about with this. The first is, this is the first time, and we're in 1984 for this movie? Yes, 84. Star Wars is now five years old, and I finally feel that Star Trek turned it around, pulled its pants down, and raped it. Let's start with the cantina scene, shall we? When McCoy goes into a cantina or bar to hire a pilot to go to Genesis. To be fair, can any movie post-Star Wars do a scene in a bar and not have you think of the cantina? But it's a scene in a bar to hire a pilot for an illegal run away from authorities. And the guy, when he's talking to McCoy, was almost like a Yoda kind of thing, too. Price you name, place I name. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it was feeling a little derivative, even to me, and I haven't seen Star Wars. All they needed was a jazz score. That's all it needed. (laughs) And then it gets worse, okay? Because then they break McCoy out of prison like Princess Leia to the point of pretending to go in under the guise of something else. And then Sulu blows up the communications console with the gun. Well, the A-team broke Murdoch out of constantly out of... But it was not in space. There was not shooting out a console. And it was not filmed the same way. I mean, it was even shot the same way where the console was there, the door was on the right, the corridor to the cells was on the left. So what are we saying? Gene Roddenberry hated Star Wars, but Leonard Nimoy loved it? And then when they're taking the Enterprise out of space dock and they're going towards the door, my wife even turned to me and said, I hope that old man got the tractor beam out of commission. (laughs) (laughs) I felt like the whole thing, that entire sequence was just a ripoff of the Death Star scene in A New Hope. You might be right. Strangely, it was Kirk in the role of Luke, McCoy in the role of Leia and Sulu in the role of Han. I guess that makes Chekhov Chewbacca. Yeah, that's probably right. Okay. My second thing about this, you got to go to a planet. You got to go to an illegal place. You approach one guy in a bar and he refuses. And so you steal the Enterprise. That's not like stealing a Toyota. That is stealing an aircraft carrier. 800 people live on the Enterprise. Couldn't they find any other way? Well, that was the thing that, that occurred to me was that, and they make a big point of this in the second movie. In the second movie, the Enterprise has a whole new crew that's training on it, and you see all these people in the engine room. How does a ship that's normally manned by hundreds of people get run by three people on the deck and Scotty? I mean, I it really felt, <laughs> wow, you guys are really taking a lot on. I know you know the ship. I know this is your baby, but... 
come on. I mean, you need extra people to run that. And it was just spending a lot to believe that they could just get away with stealing that. But you go with it because what else are you going to do? Yeah, admittedly, it didn't take me out of the movie so much. It was after the fact. Again, it's like I said in the last movie, it's not a sleek little fighter. This thing is not a boat. It's a carrier. Yeah. Yeah. It occurred to me afterwards as well, when I was thinking about the movie, when the Klingons were asking how many people are on a Federation ship, and Kirk was asking crew how many Klingons are typically on a bird of prey. So they were comparing, you know, what's going to happen, this and that, because the Klingons thought they were going (laughs) to beam onto a ship full of people. But I have a theory, actually, and I don't know if this is true or not, but what it seemed to me... The theory, I think, of why they had so few crew members, besides the plot dictating it, of course, or them stealing it, is that once the Enterprise is stolen, it's an incredibly economic movie in that there are no extras until you get to Vulcan. It is only the core people and the Klingons, right? So to me, what's interesting about this movie and what was partially hard for me to really always get into the movie was... The sets, to me, looked like sets, and the lighting was really obvious to me and how they were trying to do things with lighting, and the pacing, as we talked about, was a little off, and it seems to me that this movie was done, quote-unquote, on the cheap compared to the last one, and I have no idea what the budget was for this, but did you guys ever get that impression of it being cheaply made, like the puppet dog looked like a puppet dog, it didn't look like a dog, you know? So that kind of stuff. Did that occur to you guys when you're watching the movie at all? Or am I adding extra stuff in because of, you know, my knowledge of movie magic? Well, I'm not going to argue with you. This movie looked cheap. Yeah, okay, good. The, 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 <laughs> the dog looked completely cheap. Completely that Klingon cheap. dog. Christopher Lloyd Klingon was sitting up on high, and everyone was sitting around him, crowded around him. It was like a small little box of a cockpit kind of set. When the dog dies and he's holding on to that dog, it looks like a stuffed toy. It doesn't even look like it was alive. The Genesis planet was laughably bad. I thought I was watching 60s Star Trek again when the planet started to fall apart. It was that cheap looking. I don't know. I I feel like you guys are a little bit of a special effects snobs. I mean, I think that if we took a time trip back to 1984, you would see what else was in theaters and you would think that would look pretty good. I've seen Return of the Jedi. This was no Return of the Jedi. Can I just say I love the dog and I wish it had done something cool? Uh, the dog actually kind of reminded me of Jabba. For some reason, I was getting that, like, because Jabba had that little pet. It felt like the even the setup with the way that Christopher Lloyd's character sits next to the dog, it was kind of like Jabba's throne room. All right, so no, it wasn't as good as that. But I didn't feel like, I don't know, compared to, like, Doctor Who, which I was watching a lot, it's a lot better than that. Stuart, I got a comparison for you. I got a comparison for you that will knock your socks off. Okay. This is the same year that Ghostbusters came out. And the Mm -hmm. Zool dogs, when they weren't stop-motion animation, were giant puppets. Like when it was in the hallway growling at Rick Moranis in the the apartment building, that was a puppet, but didn't look like a puppet compared to this. Do you agree? Yeah, you might be right. When I think about Ghostbusters being the same year, you're right. These effects don't hold water. When I was eight years old, Stuart, when I was eight years old and I saw this movie, the dog creeped me out a little bit. Not as much as the earwigs in the second movie, but the dog got me because of the drooling stuff, right? And this yeah. movie looked cool to an eight and nine-year-old. It really did. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. But these, maybe we could also say politely that the effects have not held up. Let's put it that way. The thing is, here's the killer for me. In the first podcast episode of this retrospective series, I mentioned how I didn't like the Klingon Birds of Prey that looked really obvious to me with the special effects black lines around the wings. In this movie, the best shots, special effects shots, were the Klingon Bird of Prey. I thought they were really clean. I didn't really see many of the lines, quote-unquote, showing. A couple of the shots you saw the boxes that the typical of this sort of time period with the flying special effects of the models. But for the most part, especially when the Klingon Bird of Prey flew away from the camera, it looked fantastic. And now maybe it's just the cleanup they did for the DVD that I'm watching. To my knowledge, they've never touched up the effects here. Okay. The whole movie is about them retrieving Spock's body and getting Spock's Katra out of Bones' mind, right? And we are told this because Spock's father shows up and says, Spock told you to do this. And Kirk's like, well, he didn't tell me nothing. How come nobody knew to do this? Savick is a Vulcan. And she was standing right there when they shot his body out. Hmm. I thought it was weird when they put him in a torpedo to begin with. I thought that was a strange way to send him off. And I thought it was obviously a setup for, well, we have to get him onto the planet to get him reborn. I just thought that was how you bury people in space is you set them, you know, it's a cremation. You put them into the atmosphere of a planet to burn up. I don't know why I thought that. I don't know if I read it in some Star Trek book in the 80s, but I completely went with that. But if Savick is a Vulcan, why not have her there going, "Uh, what about the Katra? You you guys take care of that Katra yet? Yeah, good point. (laughs) Good point. No, it's not consistent with uh, what we would expect, but... You know, I I found it a little weird that Spock's father, I guess it is, Sarek, was the one that told them they should have kept the body all along to do the ceremony. You don't need the body to do the ceremony. If if Spock actually transferred the Katra like all Vulcans do, you don't need the body for that as long as you have the person who has the Katra. So why would you need Spock's body, A? B, they're putting it on this planet, as Arnie calls it, the plot device, of the planet's rapidly aging, so therefore anything on the planet would rapidly age, therefore Spock's molecules are rapidly aging, like the worms that were found at the coffin were rapidly aging, right? So that's the yeah. plot device to get Spock to be the exact same age, which I thought was hysterically funny, as Arnie mentioned earlier, but that really needed to happen just for us, the audience, to get our Spock back, you see? So... Mm-hmm. But they clearly established you don't even need the body for the mind transfer. Clearly established that. Or unless I'm crazy wrong there. You know, I'm sure that one of the novels somewhere explains why you need the body, but I didn't get it. Okay. And maybe the only explanation I could give is maybe Savick thought he was behind glass the whole time and never could transfer the Katra, so might as well let him burn out in a blaze of glory. I suppose you could go with that. But it just seems, again, you know, this entire movie is fixing the fact that Nimoy had a change of heart. And Nimoy deciding he wants to die is the best moment of part two, but it overall makes part three a weak movie with a weak villain and a weak MacGuffin that they're chasing after. I don't know. I said this the last time. I don't think that they could have continued Star Trek without Nimoy. I'm not sure what those movies would have looked like without him. Oh, I'm not saying they should have. Stuart, wouldn't it look like this movie? Because this movie, Spock isn't even in it for the majority of the movie. True. And I don't know if that would have been a good thing. I mean, and, and let's be honest. Would they have gone back for Ahura? Would they have gone back for Sulu? <laughs> would they have even searched for Scotty? I'm like, oh, he's gone. All right. good. They would call it Star Trek Three: The Chase for Chekhov. <laughs> 
they wouldn't have uh, stolen the ship and gone back for Chekhov. And uh, I feel like they had to do it, and by any means necessary, they did it. And it was kind of a, a half-successful effort in the resurrection. I bought some of it, and some of it I felt like, well, I'll grant it to you because I want Spock to come back too. Well, let's talk about the Klingons, because here's the thing. I understand that to the old Trek, the first series, which I never watched, they were the badass villains. They were the Borg. They were the ones that, when they came on, they were the fan favorites. And so I felt like, wow, we're finally going to get to them in this third movie. This is the first one that's, that, that's actually featured them. I know there was a cameo in the beginning of the first movie, but this is the first time that they're the villains and the, the foil in the movies. Did you think they used him very well? Because I've got to say, coming after Khan, Christopher Lloyd is no Ricardo Montalban. Christopher Lloyd was totally miscast. I have a big problem with him in this movie. Maybe it's because I see him as a comedic actor in everything I've ever seen him done. But he carries no weight to him. At no point do I feel his character, Krooge, is a threat. I just keep expecting him to go back to the future! He doesn't lose himself in that character. To me, it's Christopher Lloyd with a headpiece. At the end with a fist fight, it's laughable as an old man and Jim from Taxi. <laughs> yeah, when, when Kirk kicks him off the mountain and says, I am tired of you. No, it's uh, I have had enough uh, of you. Who didn't agree? Who didn't <laughs> agree? I'm like, you should have done that hours ago. Yeah. Well, the only exception I take to that, Arnie, I thought he was a fantastic villain in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Agreed. Yeah, Christopher Lloyd has two periods. You wa- don't want to go near anything post-Adam's family. Anything before <laughs> Adam's family, he was in these big, well-to-do special effects movies that were, you know, Back to the Future, Roger Rabbit. They were big. Anything after that, though, boy, if he turns up in the credits, you know it's god-awful. I didn't really mind Christopher Lloyd all that much. I hear your point. He's nowhere as menacing as Khan, and his voice is kind of weird. But this is the first time we really hear a lot of Klingon language, and I think he has his gift of saying stuff that doesn't make any sense, and I really believed he was speaking Klingon, and that's not an easy thing to do. Well, he really was speaking Klingon. The Klingon language was developed for this movie, utilizing the elements of Klingon we heard in episode one. Oh. This is where it all began. Nowadays, if you can speak Klingon fluently, many mental health hospitals are looking for people who can translate the Klingon of the inmates. I'm not even joking on that. (laughs) Speak Klingon, you can get a job at a mental hospital. (laughs) Are there that many crazy Trekkies? Apparently so. Uh, My mother kept getting confusing Star Wars and Star Trek and tried to get me jobs at mental hospitals thinking I could speak Klingonese. (laughs) It's called Klingonese? Well, I think it's just called Klingon, I guess. Now, I want to say, in addition to Christopher Lloyd, the comedic Klingons continue. Try saying that five times fast. (laughs) Did any of you notice who was his communications officer? I cheated. I did not know when I watched the movie, but I looked it up afterwards. And John Larroquette. Continuing our 80s sitcom Star Trek actors, John Larroquette just pre-Night Court as Maltz the Klingon, the only one to survive Star Trek Three. You're kidding me. I am not, sir. That's the guy at the end who's like, you said you were going to kill me? Yep. No. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. I didn't recognize him either. Yeah. There was one line because I knew he was one of them, but I didn't know which one. And I kept listening for that voice because he's got the very distinctive voice and he hit it for most of the lines. But right when they are beaming to the Enterprise and he's the one staying behind, I heard his real voice come through and I picked him. I, I didn't pick that up at all. Good catch. Since we're talking about 80s sitcoms, could someone tell me, because Kirstie Alley was not on Cheers yet, what did she have to do that was so much better than coming back as Savick? And I cheated myself. I looked this one up. She pulled a Captain Pananka for the episode one fans out there. She pulled a tank from The Matrix. Basically, she said, I want this much money. And they said, see ya. You're not that important. We can replace you. And she got shafted. Wow. Oh, yeah. She played the money game. Oh, yeah. I feel like the movie would have been a little better, at least a little more. uh, I I like continuity, so I did feel I missed her. Not that the person they got was was bad or anything. She was. Robin Curtis hasn't worked this century, and there's a reason. (laughs) She is miserable. I could go with a recast. I don't like recasting the same role, but I understand for whatever reason it has to happen once in a while. But first of all... It's not the same character. It is not played at all the same. It is nothing the same character about it. There's no even attempt to write or act the character similar to how it was before. They don't even emulate the hairstyle. Couldn't they give us a bone with that one? I think she was meant to look like Sally Ride. That's who I thought of, who would have just gone into space. Did anybody else get that? I didn't catch that at all. I have no clue who Sally Ride is other than Ride, Sally Ride. (laughs) All right. Well, you know, since we're talking about differences, though, I I had to look it up and see if uh, Kirksum was the same, because in this one, he's all giddy. I feel like they weren't written the same. I don't know that I blame the actors so much as the writing. Even with the writing of Savick in this movie, which we'll get into the screenplay in just a second, I promise, I felt that she didn't act Vulcany enough for me, or if she was acting Vulcany, she was too flat. For me, there's a little bit of a fine line that Kirstie Alley did have, and of course Nimoy has, is that, yes, they are logical, but there's a little bit of, I don't know, almost, it's not the right word for it, but there's kind of like a smile to it. Let me tell you what you're trying to say. When I was researching part two... (laughs) Please, get into my mind, sir. Do Do you have a little worm that goes into my ear and you can do it for me? When I was researching part two, I read the director's description of how Kirstie Alley played Savick. And he realized that it was the same way that Nimoy played Spock, which is, while it seems very serious on the front, what it actually is, is a deadpan humor delivery. Wow, so you're right. You actually were... T- <laughs> Thank you. you. I concede. <laughs> you were right. It's exactly what I'm trying to say. And Robin Curtis had none of that at all. She none. And I also felt like they tried too hard to tire to the character. Her very first line, saying to Kirk's son... Just like your father, so human. I'm like, oh, dear, dear God. (laughs) (laughs) She wasn't very good, but she wasn't a problem for me. I guess that's all that I'm saying. Sometimes when these recasts happen, I was distracted. This one, I just kind of went with it. I thought it was weird that her character ended up on Genesis. I'm not sure what would make her leave what was her role on the Enterprise to go explore this foreboding planet. Well, she's a science officer, right? No, she was a trainee cadet lieutenant. 
Yeah, no, oh, she right. was there. Right. I, she was studying to be a captain. I mean, that's why she was doing that whole... What's it called again? Kobayashi Maru. Thank thank you, yes. Well, if you read the novelization, she and Dr. David Marcus kind of had a thing going. They implied that, but it wasn't really clear at all in the movie. In part two, they had a thing going? No, in part three. Well, yeah, in part three, I felt like there was something going on, but they didn't even hint at that in the second movie. No. no. They really didn't have a moment for it in this movie at all. It was just sort of all of us kind of felt that way, but I don't think it actually was done. While we're talking about that, where the hell is Carol Marcus? I had to yeah. do digging on this one. I mean, the truth is I just think the script didn't need her. If you want to follow the novelization, this is very shortly after part two, and she was traveling around to give condolence calls to the families of the scientists murdered on regular one. And she actually finds out about her own son's death during one of those visits. Oh, what a great scene that might have been to have in this movie. (laughs) It would have been nice to have her referenced. What I find kind of atrocious is they edited her out of the Genesis film and replaced her with Shatner. I agree. That was weird. It's like we can't even reference that this woman ever existed because then we'd have to explain her away. Yeah, I actually thought that they redid the sequence because Kirk wasn't anywhere near it. And then as the second time they played it or something in the movie, I thought that it was his report and he was reminding us all of what the Genesis Project was. So the Marcus video is different than this video, although they use the same exact graphics to do it. And I think the words are almost identical. Well, really, where would she have fit in this movie? Would you have had another person on the ship or on the planet to be a hostage? Would you have had that extra plot thread floating around? The truth is, this movie's perfunctory, but the other thing that this movie is, is tight. There's no extra BS in this movie that doesn't need to be there. And I think adding her would have helped continuity, but hurt the movie. Well, you know, I think we can replace Carol Marcus in the place of Savick and kept Savick on the Enterprise, or maybe Savick could have been someone who prevented the stealing of the Enterprise or tried to you know, be the last obstacle and give her a smaller role and have Carol Marcus and David Marcus on the planet, the planet that they created together, you see. So you wanted Carol Marcus, the mother of Kirk's son, to get freaky with Spock? No. Because you know Savick and Spock did the nasty a few times in this movie. Well, I it's implied because they do bring it's back... It's not implied. It's said. That's what Ponfar is. That little finger thing, that's yeah. the Vulcan mating ritual. I had no idea what they were doing. Can I just say, as a non-Trek person, I had no idea what anything was happening at that scene. I was really weirded out by it. This is the first time watching this movie, and I said, said before, I've seen this movie many, many times. Since I mentioned in the first episode of this series, I actually saw that episode of the original series by mistake late at night when I was watching the original series a couple of years ago. This is the first time since I saw that episode have seen this movie, and it's the first time I understood what the hell was going on there. And they reference it. It's a great callback to the original series, but as Stuart just said, for all these years, I had no freaking clue what was going on in that scene. And it really would have been nice... If they explain it to us. Well, it's family friendly. And while it does call back to that other one, it does so incorrectly because in that movie, Spock was experiencing his first Ponfar after thinking his human blood would have not subjected him to its madness. And here is teenage Spock going through Ponfar. So it was a callback, but, you know, 
I don't know why they put it in there, to be honest. They didn't have to because the old episode said he didn't experience it until much later. It's just kind of weird that uh, maybe Nimoy liked Robin Curtis. I don't know, but something... Okay, so if you take the freaky stuff out, you could have had Carol and David Marcus on the planet. Of course, then, as we may talk about later, when it gets to the Klingons killing one of them, it might have been a little weird considering the situation. Again, I think it would have helped continuity to have her there, but I at no point missed her. A a dropped line would have been nice, perhaps. Just one offline, you know, saying, my mother is still visiting the relatives of the dead folk. But they also never say Khan's name in this whole movie either, so... True. Let's talk about the death of David, then, since you brought that up. Okay, so I'm watching this movie, and at a certain point in this movie, the Klingon commander, played by Christopher Lloyd, wants to make an example to Kirk. He says, kill one of the prisoners, I don't care which. And to save Savick, David blocks the Klingon warrior, and David dies with a stab in the stomach. And as I'm watching this movie for myself... I asked, I have a note here, why not kill Savick? Why kill David? If Savick was not that important a character to me or anyone else in this Star Trek lore, and they already established David was Kirk's son, why put Kirk through another death? And then at the end of the movie, after Genesis falls apart, because David is instrumental in, as he admits in the movie, of putting the and I'll use the Jurassic Park metaphor I used in the last podcast we talked about, he put the frog DNA in the dinosaurs. Proto-matter, sir. Proto-matter. Thank you. Proto-matter in the planet. I guess it's his comeuppance for using the bad stuff to create the planet. So that must be the script reason why David dies. That has to be it. To use your Jurassic Park reference... In Jurassic Park, the old man dies in the book, and he lives in the movie. And when I saw that movie in theaters with my sister, everybody's like, the old man should have died. He brought this all down on them. So, yes, it is movie morality that the evildoer must perish. But I got to say, I think it's a great fake out. Which one of them is wearing red? What does that mean? The red shirt always dies. If you have Kirk, Spock, McCoy, and Lieutenant Smith, which one's going to die on the planet? The one wearing the red shirt. Savick is there in a red shirt, and she lives. I think it's a great play off the fact that it would always be Lieutenant Savick who dies in Star Trek. I see. But it could have been Savick. I don't think any of us would have cared. You know what I mean? Both of these characters were just there in this movie. And although Shatner's response to David's death was, you know, not bad acting. I thought it was okay. He was starting to go downhill in this one, I felt. Shatner, he peaked in two. Earlier when I did the I Have Had Enough of You, I Have Had Enough of Shatner's acting. Well, yeah, at that point it was was overboard. But I thought the reaction to David's death was good at the moment, but then quickly forgotten. Even when he put his coat over his face and they did a pan of the rest of the cast, it kind of felt like, and we move on, you know? It definitely did. I agree with you. I'm going to do something I'm never going to do again. I'm going to compliment Kirk's performance, or rather Shatner's performance. (laughs) I feel like he handled that scene very well. And they didn't have much time to establish David as a character or him, his relationship with David. They didn't really spend much time together. So it was sort of an awkward death scene. On one hand, it's his son. On the other hand, he's only known him for a couple weeks. It was well played, and I question whether they needed to kill him at all, or anyone. Agreed. 
But uh, I guess they felt like if Spock died to save the ship and to save Kirk's son among everyone else, then maybe the price for getting Spock back is to lose the ship and to lose somebody else. I never put that parallel together. Spock died to save the ship. The ship died to save Spock. Yep. Wow. Brilliant, Stuart. Thanks. I never put that together in all my years. Let's talk about the ship then, blowing up, because I thought it was awesome. I love how the saucer blows. I love the whole sequence of the three of them giving numbers. I loved how they faked out the Klingons. What a freaking awesome scene that was. And then I loved, I loved how the saucer blew up, and then the rest of the ship went into the atmosphere and burned up, and then the rest of the crew was watching it burn in the atmosphere. I thought that entire sequence was fantastic. And the special effects looked great. I agree that the scene worked well. I know a lot of fans really got as emotional in this scene as when Spock died. I never was one of them. I was like, it's a ship, you know? It's, it's been with us a long time, but I thought it was well done, though. I, it worked for the movie. Yeah, they were going to scrap this ship anyway. I mean, it was pointed out early in the story that the Enterprise was not going to get repaired. It was going to be junked, and Excelsior was going to be the one that goes out. So, mm -hmm. in some ways, it's nice to see it go out doing something good, taking out a few Klingons. Agreed. I thought it was a big deal. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It was a big deal, and it not only was it wow, we've lost something that we've been with this whole time, but it strands the crew on a planet that is unstable. And it really is, how are they going to get out of this one now that they don't have a ship to fly away? I thought the Excelsior would come and rescue them. So I was really surprised that Kirk ends up speaking Klingon and tricks them into beaming them up. Yes. Yes. I do want to mention, this is the first time we ever see that Klingon bird of prey, which comes back again and again. What a cool ship that is. Oh, yeah. I agree. With yeah, the wings was... and things. I, I said in the last podcast, the Enterprise is a boat. Well, this thing's a fighter plane. It flies like a fighter plane. It does swoops. It's got a cloaking device. What a cool ship. Much it more is. dangerous than its crew. Absolutely. Mm. <laughs> totally agree with you. It's a cool-looking ship. By the same token... The Klingon Bird of Prey really blows sh stuff up good. It took out two Federation starships. How much abuse do these ships take in other movies? I love that line. I told you to disable their engines. And he says, lucky shot. It was great. What a great laugh line that was. Yeah, but I mean, it was, again, a dropped line to expediate the plot. They didn't want drawn-out space battles, you know? They wanted to get on with it. And so yeah, the right. Klingon Bird of Prey quickly took out the Grissom, and then it just about as quickly took out the Enterprise. Yeah, and that's a mistake. I feel like they should have had uh, a battle there. I felt like the movie was hungering for more action scenes like we saw in uh, Part 2. Because the Kirk... Kluge fist fight or whatever his name is did not count it as action scene in my book. No, I agree. No. Star Trek 2 was full of action and there was very little physical action. It was all ship to ship action. Here, we didn't have much of any action. And it wasn't suspenseful either. Again, the, the ending was telegraphed before we came in. The least they could have done is given us a good ship-to-ship -ship battle. Although, I mean, I do like the fact that it was, we have no crew, so therefore the Enterprise can't even raise the shields. Yeah. It at yeah. least hit home that seven people does not an 800-person crew make. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. exactly. It would have been quite something if they had spent this whole movie trying to rescue Spock and then he didn't live. <laughs> I can't imagine how anticlimactic that would have been if they had gone through the whole ceremony and no one was sure it was going to work, and it didn't. 
Do you feel at the end it was left at all ambiguous how well it worked? Because obviously we find out in the next movie, spoiler alert, it didn't work perfectly. Here, I'm not sure if that's what we're supposed to take away or if it's just supposed to be a happy, happy ending with everybody gathering around Spock and Spock arching his eyebrow as Spock is wont to do. My sense is that he's on the path, that no, he doesn't remember everything, but that he recalls being their friend and and reciting some of the dialogue that he said right before he died, led you to believe that it was all going to come back. By the time part five rolls around, they've stopped even referencing it, so sure. (laughs) All right, fair enough. But you know what? I will say this. I'm actually happy that they sort of deem the Genesis device as a failure because I felt like they opened a can of worms there by creating something that has the ability to create life. I felt like, boy, once you introduce a device that's that magical and knowing the next generation takes place, what, several centuries beyond this and that Ah, 50 years. Oh, it's only 50. Okay, but they never use that technology. I thought it was a real Pandora's box that opened, but I felt I was okay with it once I realized that whatever that protoplasm or whatever it was made it unstable. I thought that it was a good thing that they were able to deem it a failure and realize that they should not have done it in the first place. Yeah, but it's still one hell of a weapon, ain't it? <laughs> I mean, yeah. I think yeah. that it, that would still be a nice weapon arms race to pursue, and it's never brought up again. And I think it's because, you know, in Gene Roddenberry's utopic future, humans will never use something as a weapon of mass destruction, you know, but it would have been nice to see, you know, the Klingons still researching it or the humans keeping it and, you know, Romulans venture into the neutral zone so we terraform and blow up a planet. Maybe they will use it again. Who knows? Maybe in the next movie. And we will see then. So, Arnie, Stuart, do you recommend Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock? Stuart? Begrudgingly. I don't think it's a particularly great movie, but I feel like it carries on enough of what was started well in the last one that it makes it almost essential viewing. I mean, it's, it's sort of a coda to uh, what was a really great movie. Arnie? Stewart said it perfectly. I can't say that I recommend this movie. This movie does not stand alone and should never be the one you watch. If you happen to see two, you know, two, three, and four establish kind of a loose trilogy with three being the weakest link, but it's still solid. And it's not a bad movie. It's just not a great movie. So I I give it a half-hearted recommendation. And I do recommend it, and I completely acknowledge both of your points, and I, I can't find a third way to say the same thing. It It is not as good as the last one, but it certainly is, you know, an entertaining enough watch, clearly weaker than the second film. But especially if you're watching the Trek movies, you gotta watch this one. You know, you have to. And there's enough here to keep it going here and there. It has its moments. It certainly does. There's no way to miss this one and understand how Spock comes back to life. So for that reason alone, you got to watch it. Can I yeah. just say, though, when you watch it, when they get to Vulcan, just start watching it on fast forward because that scene <laughs> goes on forever. Oh, and boy. Yeah. Just, you know where it's going. There's no suspense. It's just blah, 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 blah. And it, yeah. I, I, I was like <laughs> checking my watch. Uh, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, it felt like Nimoy was indulging in his fan love here. It was like, oh, I know you all love me, and I'm going to delay my emergence onto the stage. We all know you're coming out here. Come on. Get out now. Do it. <laughs> <laughs> Don't feign this modesty. 
Well, I want to thank you for joining us for Now Playing. If you want to hear other episodes of the Star Trek series or other episodes of Now Playing that have nothing to do with Star Trek but other movies in general, or listen to our Friday the 13th episode in our retrospective series of that. You can go to www.nowplayingpodcast.com and find those podcasts there. You can also find a link to our forums where you can discuss these episodes with other listeners. Please join us each week for another episode of our Star Trek retrospective series. We'll be releasing one episode a week until the new J.J. Abrams remake in May of 2009. I want to thank Stuart and Arnie for joining me today. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Live long and prosper, dude. And we will talk to you soon when we take... A voyage home. Live long and prosper. The hell I will. (laughs) Space. The final frontier. These are the continuing voyages of the starship Enterprise. Her ongoing mission to explore strange new worlds to seek out new life forms and new civilizations to boldly go where no man has gone Thank you for joining us for this installment of Now Playing's Look Back at all of the films in the Star Trek series. Be sure to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com every Friday from now until the release of the new movie May 8th for a new installment in our Trek retrospective. Star Trek and all the Star Trek universe contains is copyright and trademark Paramount Pictures, all rights reserved. Now Playing is not affiliated with Paramount Pictures. Gentlemen, your work today has been outstanding. I tend to recommend you all for promotion in whatever fleet we end up serving. Now Playing is a production of Inganza Media Incorporated, copyright 2009, all rights reserved. She was awful. What's that weird noise? The phaser's on stun. Um, a <laughs> siren is going off in my office. Uh, excuse me. Okay. Um, my UPS battery decided at this moment to die. UPS? My uninterruptible power supply, so if I lost power, I'd still be talking to you guys. How ironic. Lost yes, power. isn't it? <laughs> <laughs>